This is the Commercial Property Show Australia. Show number 54. Just want to try and see if you have any kind of a crystal ball when it comes to interest rates over the next 20 years. Do you want to give it a stab to see uh, how wrong or right we can be? No. No chance. <laughs> hey, commercial property communities. Thank you for joining me again today. My name is Andrew Bean. I'm your host, and we have an absolutely killer show for you today. And here it is. Brian Sullivan from Sullivan Property returns to the show to talk about how in his syndication career has he changed strategies? How has he seen the market? How has he seen and predicted where it's going to go? And how has he pivoted in his strategy for creating excellent syndications for his clients? Being that we're in an inflationary environment where cost of goods and cost of developing materials has gone up and now with interest rates going up as well, this is a great time to understand how to identify when your strategy needs to pivot to something else. We talk about seeing a sector go full cycle. That's an interesting one because he's been in the industry for so long. We talk about when developing is a good idea, developing assets, and we talk about when buying existing is also a good idea. And in general, what kind of strategies he was using when he first started back in the day compared to what he's using right now. And just so you know, we recorded this interview before the RBA started getting really, really aggressive with the cash rate increases. So just keep that in mind. All this and much, much more. But first, if you're struggling to figure out if that industrial investment that you're looking at is being sold at a fair cap rate or the rate per square meter is to market or how many new leases have actually been written in the last month and you just want to understand the supply and demand of a market, then check out CP Data. That's commercialpropertydata.com.au. The only platform that breaks down commercial property data sector by sector for you, the investor, to make informed decisions that are backed with solid data. That's www.commercialpropertydata.com. .au. Check out our free membership today. Investing in commercial property is a lot like a team sport. You need a lot of good players around you to complete a property transaction. No one can do it alone. If you're like me and want to surround yourself with like-minded people who have similar property goals, people who motivate you and push you to achieve more, then come and join the commercial property community today. You can find our private group on Facebook by searching commercial property community, or you can click on the link in the show notes. Our expert guests are just waiting to answer your questions in the forum. And together, we can help each other reach the ultimate goal 
of financial freedom. My next guest is a property syndicator and founder of Sullivan Property. It's Brian Sullivan. How are you, mate? Good, Andrew. How are you? I'm fantastic, buddy. So, mate, for the listeners who didn't catch you back in episode 39, can you just share a little bit about your property background? Small private syndicator and investor here in Western Australia. My background comes from an agency background in, in, in Perth. I spent a little bit of time working for a property syndicator in Melbourne. From there, developed an interest in, in that area. Came back to Perth, set up a property syndication company with a couple of partners. Left that entity in 2010 to open a practice of my own, which is more around our own investment and then inviting people to join with us as opposed to a larger syndication or agency model. And I've been doing that quietly away in the background since 2010 and that's where we are today. But it's been quite an enjoyable journey and experience through my career and I'm quite interested in seeing if we can't help a few others now along the way. Yeah, definitely, mate. So how do you like determine what your like scale is? Do you do it by assets or like total value of assets under management? I suppose the, the way I would determine it is not necessarily by assets under management. It's I took a decision that I didn't want to have partners anymore and I took a decision that I didn't want to work a certain way trying to be all things to all people and that I wanted to have a very hands-on approach. So I've kept my numbers. That's what I can handle with myself and a couple of people. And if I can't do that with my consultants, my contacts, I'm not interested. So we'd have 100 to 150 mil under management now. We keep that that's in a manageable form. We do things as time efficiently as we can, concentrating on the things that are important, not getting lost in things that I don't think are important and anybody who's worked in the industry for a long period of time, particularly in fund management, learns that the amount of time they spend on reporting to entities and reporting in particular ways is sometimes just exponentially ridiculous. We don't do any of that. We concentrate on the things that add value and the things that are important um, and we concentrate on properties that you know we have an interest in or we have clients who have had for 30 years. So that's how I define small. It's not yeah, fair enough. I mean, 100 to 150 million of assets in most people's minds, that's probably not that small. So congratulations to you, mate. That's an awesome job there. Well, today we have you here to chat about the changing investing climate and how to recognize when it's actually time to pivot to another strategy. So, mate, can you tell us when you first started your syndication business, what asset types were you going after and what was the strategy back then? Yeah, sure. Look, I'll look, I won't go all the way back, but I'll go back to the early 2000s. And the strategy early in, in the 2000s was highly focused on the industrial sector. Mm-hmm. The reason and logic behind it was, and it does help to have some background and knowledge of sectors, yields, rents, where they've been and where they're going to and land values. And the strategy behind that back in the early 2000s was was pretty much formed by most industrial assets, a single tenant, which carries a risk profile. There'd been relatively static land value, Perth, for a long period of time. Rents were relatively static for a long period of time. We felt we could overcome the weakness of the single tenant 
risk profile of industrial by forming syndicates, which meant that the person could have an investment in three or four, therefore exposing their risk across three or four assets, having an all-in-one basket. We felt that was the way to move forward. On the more larger scale analysis, I felt that the land values had lagged a bit. Yields were definitely at a considerable variance between the yields on other property categories. You might have been looking at retail at the time an office at the time somewhere between six and seven, but you were looking at industrial yields of 10 and 12%. So it wasn't a really hard decision to focus in on that market. And we did that between around about 2000 and 2005. And when I say focusing on on that market, that doesn't mean we didn't look at other asset classes. It just meant that that particular asset class was at that stage more attractive. And I bought, I think, five to seven, maybe a few more industrial properties through that period, and they all performed quite well. They were able to provide security of income, to vary that income by investment in a wide span of properties, and they were all single property trusts. In other words, each each trust had a single asset in it, and we did that quite successfully through that period. As to when that changed, well, we went through quite a boom in Perth with rents and land values of industrial property changing quite quickly through that period and took a decision probably later in the, to look at other asset classes, I suppose. So does that help? Yeah. So when, I mean, back then, like in terms of like the, if you're going to put it on a totem pole of like which assets were in favour and which were not, I'd imagine that industrial assets back then were probably the least in favour. That would have been quite against the grain going for industrial assets back then. Yeah, it was. And, you know, I felt that there were many properties advertised as industrial assets that were actually investment quality. So you had investment quality tenants, but they were viewed as industrial, therefore not attracting the same level of interest. So it was quite common for us to acquire industrial property at 10 and 11% yields pre yeah, wow. thousand. certainly that came down as the market improved but there was still a substantial discount and if you're looking at discounts of four and five percent variation between asset classes as we were it didn't make it a hard decision it, it was a relatively easy decision to say look this is where the better value is at this point in time and it proved relatively accurate we those yields tracked down until it got to the point where the yields of an industrial property are no different from the yields of a of a um, shopping centre or retail property. And at that point, I felt this isn't right. No, I can still recall we bought some land in, um, in Wangara to develop, and one of the pivotal points was when I couldn't make that development work for love nor money. I, I couldn't build building on this land, rent it out for the rents that we believed we would achieve and make it profitable and I thought then I thought right let's move this land on which we did for a profit and um, I thought then oh let's start to look at the other classes there was less of a variance and if there isn't a variance between buying a single tenant industrial property then there is buying a a retail zoned asset on a major road with a cross-section of 12 tenants in a supermarket then it's time to pivot and so that was that was probably the first change and one of the changes that we made Round about 2007 to 2010, the industrial took less of my interest and made the decision that our money was better off invested elsewhere. And we slowly moved out of that industrial portfolio. But we didn't rush out of it. We just moved out of that portfolio as syndicates expired and as time moved on. In fact, I think that 
the last one was sold in 2020 or thereabouts. We made the decision to concentrate on other asset classes around about 2007. And moving forward, we bought medical centre, other asset classes. And, and I, I formed a view that the bulky goods sector was was of interest. The rents in the 100 to 130 square metre range, which was actually comparable at that stage with where the industrial rents had headed. You had a usage that was close to retail. Retail rents in the shopping centres had priced many of these large users out. So I spent a bit of time in the bulky goods sector. We bought a few bulky goods properties and uh, that sector still interests me. I still believe that those parameters remain true to this day. Uh, Large format retail can occupy a bulky goods complex with outgoings at around about 50 to $60 a square metre mark instead of the retail outgoings, which are well in excess of 100 a square metre, at a rent of, you know, in the ranges of 150 to 200 a square metre. That's relatively attractive to anybody who has a business which requires a large floor space, good parking, and predominant visibility and access. And so with those uh, industrial assets, where did the cap rates move to in those six years? Did they tighten a lot? They tightened substantially. Those yields went from, let's call it 12 to 8% to be generous. And if you buy an industrial property in Perth now, they move down to 5 and 6% yields, which I, I can't get my head around, even to this day, just traditionally based on where they should be. So, yeah, look, they moved considerably. The rents also increased substantially. There is still good demand for industrial property in Perth. There are still some overriding economic factors, such as our mining boom, that, that still still keep that sector performing well. So I'm not saying it's been a palmer for people who have got in after that period, but certainly we enjoyed considerable capital growth as a result of the tightening of yields and the increase in rents. And so those particular uh, syndications, so you just said you just waited for that syndication to roll up to get out of it. And were all the investors happy about that or were they, did they have some pushback about it and not about it closing? Look, I, I've never had a lot of pushback about something that's doing well being closed. And, and I've got an overriding philosophy that is properties long-term for one. In terms of the property you look at and the way you buy it, you need to buy it well. You need to add value and you need to manage it intensely. But as to crystal balling what happens in future years in terms of price rises and when to sell, I think that's beyond most people. Anybody trying to pick that spot precisely is its too much to expect, and it shouldn't be part of your buying equation. Your buying equation should rely upon buying something well. Certainly identifying who you believe the likely purchaser is is important. But if you know you've bought an asset that will appeal to a variety of purchases at the end of the day, you buy it well, you add some value, you manage it intensely, I think you've done your job. As to selling early or late, we normally acquire assets and we normally have regard for the period of hold, which has regard for leases, lease terms, it has regard for allowing enough time for the value of the property to improve. So generally speaking, those terms are between eight and 12 years. You know, there's some flexibility there in terms of if something was losing, was you have the ability to do that. But normally most people are happy to hold for that period of time. There's some flexibility in terms of the selling time frame. So you wouldn't have to sell. I don't set my syndicates up so you would 
have to sell at a, a time that was unusually volatile, for instance, and we've had a few of those recently, haven't we? But within reason, you should be able to move an asset on between 12 and 24 months comfortably accepting the market as it is at that point in time, and hopefully you've done well. I've never had an issue with rolling the syndicate, and I've never had an issue with selling the property. It's not normally in practice been something that's caused a lot of angst amongst investors. And so when someone's putting money into your syndication, is there a fixed amount of time where they have to have the money in? I'm sure there's some kind of clause where they sell their stake at some point, right? If you put your money with me in a syndicate and I tell you that it's eight years, you need to leave it with us. Oh, okay. If you don't take it out, we're not going to guarantee anything. You're in there for that eight years, so be aware that's the period of your hold. Now, when it comes down to actual practice, as we speak here today, my activities today have been transacting and selling and helping a couple of young ladies who have got a, got a super fund exit two of my syndicates, which they've done successfully, no problem. We, we were happy to facilitate that exchange between syndicate members. But you put your money in on day one, I'm pretty blunt. If it's an eight-year syndicate, you don't count on it being there for eight years. That's the way it works. So don't give us your last dollar. Give us the amount you want to invest in a long-term property investment. You really need to be that blunt. If you're not that blunt, then I think there's misunderstandings all around. So maybe it's my bluntness that makes it quite simple. <laughs> you put your money in, it stays in. Yeah, now, if, if it happens to be that you, that you need to get your money out for whatever reason, well, we'll do what we can to facilitate it, but we're not guaranteeing anything. So do you have a guaranteed return or is it just on performance of the property over that eight years? Like, what do you actually put No, in? again, I'm, you know, I don't get into this guarantee because it's a lot of nonsense. At the end of the day, we, we are offering the opportunity to, to invest in property and to experience the benefits with that. But there are risks that come with property investment as well. And your return is what the property produces. Now, I can estimate it. And I'm pretty good at that. I get that pretty right. I can tell you what I reckon it's going to be, but I'm not going to guarantee you or provide mm. you some sort of it's going to be 8%. So my general approach when I put these things together is I'm an investor. I'm the largest investor in many of them. I want to know what I'm going to likely be earning, and I'll tell you what that is with no bells and whistles, and I'll normally be pretty conservative on that as well. I prefer to tell you I think we're going to get 6 and end up with 65 or 7% return per annum than tell you we're going to get seven and a half and end up with six. I'd, I'd find personally that discussion difficult. I'll never guarantee it. It is what it is. And tenants can fall over. They can go broke. But I can guarantee you one of the syndicates we put together most recently, we bought a tavern in January of 2020. Well, we all know what happened in March. There were no guarantees there. It happened and I couldn't predict it, neither could you. As it turns out, we've come out of that pretty well, but there are no guarantees in life. That's right, mate. Only guarantees are what? Taxes and death. True. <laughs> so, True. mate, at that time of that syndication, that, that industrial syndication, you mm. mentioned that you were trying to do a development that just didn't stack up. Oh, look, were there, yeah. we, were um, there any other like factors in that, like with the market that you could recognize where this is turning? So we'd, we'd put a number of syndicates together and um, it was time to have a look at doing some development work. We put our foot on two substantial blocks of land. One was a shopping centre development site and the other was, I'll call it industrial, but it wasn't really industrial. My view on it was to buy this large clump of industrial land, which I bought, and to put some bulky goods on it. 
I can't remember the figures, Andrew, so the figures I won't use, but it took us three to six months to get them under control, get them under contract, settle the land. We then spent the next 12 months, as you do, planning the process, getting the approvals in place. We then go into our building contracts. And uh, this was through a really busy and booming period in Perth, around about 2005. By the time we were ready to develop, around about 2007, broadly, the land values had substantially increased. And I could not make, based on not the purchase price, but based on the price I could sell the two land, the land at, at that point in time, I could not make the developments work. And I knew they were the highest and best developments for that site. So, you know what, this is time for me to move. And so we, we unsold them, took a profit on the land, which was nice, wasn't the intention, but it just made more sense to do that. That was a bit of a moment where you went, hang on, this market's booming and um, it's probably got a little bit out of control. Maybe discretion is a better part of valor and we'll just sit back on it a bit. And that's what we did. The market continued to move for at least another 12, 18 months. And then we had a bit of a correction. So, And after you made that asset switch, was it easy to explain that the reasoning to your long-term investors? Yeah, well, I'm pretty upfront with people. I tell them exactly what I'm doing and why. I remember I took the money out of the sale and the profit out of the sale of the land. We'd formated a trust at that stage. So we'd said to people, we're going to do a development trust. This was the first block we bought. We ended up buying a, um, a shopping centre with a bit of development opportunity. And um, the reason for doing that was it brought income as well as development opportunity. It wasn't a straight block of land. And that was probably one of the better decisions we made transferring out of that, bringing some income into the trust. Perth went through a relatively flat period thereafter. The shopping centre performed well and continues to do so. It wasn't a hard discussion because it was pretty clear what we were doing, why we were doing it, and how it was for the benefit of the investors. I guess when everyone's winning, no one really uh, comes back and says, don't do it, do they? Yeah, it's true. Look, some of the more impressive people in the industry are able to perform for their clients when things don't go well. And I think that's a better test. So mate, that um, bulky goods shopping centre, do you still have that in your portfolio now? I'm going back to a period of just before I left on my own. So, oh, okay. you know, I, those assets are still owned by those, those trusts and um, they're still managed by the company that I was with and uh, they're still performing well. And uh, I hope they continue to do so. We went on from 2010 and we continued that that interest in bulky goods, and we bought a large bulky goods complex in Mandra, another one in Rockingham, and we started to focus in on the commercial aspects where you might find a service station or a, a large service, a small service station and commercial property on a main road, cabin on a main road. We concentrated more those commercial suburban assets as opposed to the industrial. So I haven't bought industrial since I've left on my own. It's not an area that we've factored in on. Having said that, we might start to look at it in the future. But the parameters now are, what asset can we add value to? We're not chasing the, the lease or security. We're more looking at what assets can we add some value to? Don't want vacant land, but because of building price increases, which has proven a pretty good decision, but we are interested in buying assets where we think we can add some value. That might be repositioning leases. It might be developing sites a little bit more it might be reconfiguring but that's our focus 
So we've got some bulky goods, Madra, Rockingham, commercial tavern, and the most recent acquisition was a um, shopping centre. And I think our last discussion, we touched on that two of those assets, we're trying to reposition the shopping centre by adding uh, childcare. And uh, we've got approval, hopefully pending on that over the next month or two. And we're looking to move some of the large format retail from the more traditional floor usages, which would be furniture stores and uses like that, looking more at introducing childcare, looking more at introducing users where people have to attend the site for a reason, which brings people, which means the property performs better. So we've recently had approval to change one of the tenancies over, 750 square metre tenancy over from a, what was a furniture store to a um, child mining use, which will bring people and will add to add to what we're trying to do there at that property, which is, you know, we've now introduced a large gym, we've introduced a child psychologist unit, we'll introduce child mining, we will look to reposition that asset from bulky goods to more commercial slash community-based usages. Yeah, that's really interesting because I think when people think childcare, they think of that standalone building in a neighbourhood somewhere, but utilising your existing bulky goods portfolio and adding in a childcare there, like, in terms of like adding value, how would the childcare add value compared to like another furniture bulky goods store? Like, is it even comparable? It is. You, know, you need to do your numbers and work it back. But my thought process is it does work. It does work because you get a much higher rent. And it also works because the yield are substantially different. If you can take a bulky goods asset, which at the moment, traditionally have been a slightly higher yield. I think that's changing. And compare that to uh, child mining, which has been certainly substantially in demand at yields between 45 and 5%. It all works. It all stacks up. I've taken a slightly different approach. I've not assumed that those childcare yields will remain at those levels. I'm factoring in the childcare at a higher yield than that. But still, it, it does make sense to bring a user that is going to bring, if there's a 100-place facility, it's bringing 100 mums or parents or carers every single day, yep. twice per day, to your retail property. Now that That's substantial. And then it has a flow and effect. And so it's advantage to the child care operator that they're next door to a facility like a large gym. And it just all flows on. They all work together, which is traditionally what you want to see happen in any retail environment. I'm much more attracted by that than I am buying the childcare located in the middle of the street with three houses either side. To, to me, that's that's not good use of land. That's not maximising your value. That's not what I what what interests me. What interests me is making a property work and making sure all the users of that asset benefit each other. And that's sort of retail thinking. And I think that comes into the, the large format retail area as well. And if you can reposition large format retail from these traditionally low paying rent providers to a much higher paying rent provider, that benefits the remaining large format retail use. The furniture store that remains is better now than having two, three users doing the same thing mm. because of the people that are coming there, because of the added foot traffic and foot flow, and they're all feeding off each other as opposed to much less volume, much less um, patronage. That's my thoughts. 
market. I like it. So, I mean, thinking about that from like a risk aspects, I mean, everyone always talks about childcare and they always say, yeah, but it's already, it's just got one use, right? And they're talking about your single freehold childcare. But what you've actually done is you're taking advantage of all the other retailers around it and you've changed the space. And now, but that space just, it's not just could be used for a childcare. You could retransform it back into something else which really kind of transfers the risk away i think that's excellent mate because at the end of the day childcare centers being a parent myself they're very very hard to get children into childcare centers there's never any openings to get yeah. kids in and and when you're waiting for your child or you want to go pick your child up it would be pretty handy to grab a coffee or something on the way so i think it's a great idea we certainly support that industry i see growth in that industry it's been quite substantial but from a property perspective, the usage still is specialised. The yep. fit-out still is specialised. And so by taking it away from that standalone asset and putting it as part of a larger component, I view that as it reduces the risk, it gives you some exposure to it, and it improves the performance of the childcare. So mm. I just see it as a win-win all around. And I find that much more attractive investment opportunity than I do to go and put $5 million into a child mining centre located in the middle of residential suburb X, which its alternative use is as, a, as another house. I, I, yeah. I see that as clever when the yields on that asset and some of the yields are just outstanding. It's just perplexed me. I just don't see it. I, I do understand that there is a growth of demand. I do understand that both political parties support them. I do understand all of that, but specialised property classes and specialised property assets need to be viewed carefully. It's the same argument that I have industrial-wise. The industrial asset can be quite specialised. Um, the way it's set up, the way it operates, you must have regard for your end user and your end buyer. Have you found that the cap rates for your freehold childcare are higher or lower than, say, something like where you're doing with the supporting retailers around it? They're lower. Lower. The, the wow. prices are higher, the yields are lower. And so my interest is very much in, which I think is a more correct reflection of where they should be. If you've bought childcare tied to 3% and you've paid 4% yield on it, I think already there's enough evidence out there to suggest that with inflation hitting figures of 5% plus that the 3% fixed wasn't a flash idea. And if you've paid yields of 4%, I think if you're looking at where you expect interest rates to be in two years' time, you, you've got a particularly long hold there, is my view. So I haven't been interested in that for 12, 18 months, or 12, certainly 12 months. It just hasn't made sense to me. And I'm pretty comfortable with my position on that, and it's not changing real fast. And so, mate, when you're like thinking about and looking at commercial property markets, how much weight do you put on what the media is reporting about property markets, things like that? Because they seem to be able to change the narrative reasonably quickly when they start reporting things, especially negative things. You have to pay some attention to it. You have to have regard for it because ultimately our purchasing decisions on anything are made based on your perception of you of what tomorrow will bring. And so you do have to follow, and I do have regard for what other people are paying for assets, but then I think you also need to step back and have a look at the realities around 
view and take your decision from out of the forest. So the decision that we made not to pursue standalone after investigating the the area for 18 months was a step back decision. It was, do I really want my capital in that environment? And look at the realities of the environment, specialised specialised asset, single tenant, low return. Okay. Not a good <laughs> No. And I'm not saying all of the assets in that category, but no, but when you have no differentiation between the asset that is held by the incubator tenant, and just to explain what that means, many of these assets are held by $2 paid up companies with no guarantees and they haven't started trading yet. To me, that's a considerable risk in this sector. And then you just got to step back and weigh it up and go, well, hang on, I can buy the commercial property here on a main road located in the main town, lease to three separate commercial tenants and pay 6% or I can buy this child mining centre for similar sort of monies with a single tenant with a $2 paid up company that hasn't started trading it and I'm going to get a 5% return on that and a 6% return on the commercial property. It doesn't make sense to me. doesn't make sense at all, does it? So you sit back. Now, if that was the childcare asset that's up and trading and trading really profitably that has a rent that's set perhaps two years ago, which would be lower generally than the, the current level of rents, is a good prime corn site and has a good publicly listed tenant as its occupier. That's not the same. Then you're looking at a different set of parameters. And then I can understand it. This putting everything into the one basket and going, right, childcare is that. Yeah, I, that's not clever investing. Mm. That's just following the herd. If you want to just follow the herd rule, you do need to step back and just go, oh, hang on, this is what the market's doing, but doesn't make sense or doesn't make sense in this instance, but not other instances. And that's, that's I think, something that's pretty essential to to understanding your, de- your decision-making investment. Because at the end of the day, an investment in commercial property is supposed to be about making you and your family more money, both on a return basis and on a capital basis. It's not supposed yep. to be a motive. It shouldn't be a motive, and it should be an investment decision, not a decision because you feel you're missing out. And I think we spent a bit of time on that before. Everybody else is doing it. No. Yes, pay attention to what other people are doing. Yes, listen to the marketplace, but make an objective investment decision. Make it make stand back and make sure the investment meets the objectives that you've set out to achieve. They should come back to decisions around about what you want your capital growth to be, where you want your capital invested and what return you want from it. And so being WA based, how much of the mining boom has affected your personal property strategy for your syndication business? I think we spoke about this a little bit last time. We're all affected by that. And Mm. the effect in WA is pretty positive. I look at my investment decisions in property and I encase that around where do I want to invest? And for me, Western Australia, and I'm parochial, but for me, Western Australia is has a very bright future. Take mining booms out of it. We're always going to be resource-driven. That's going to have ups and downs, but over a, a long period of time, there's natural wealth here. We, we're going to be successful People are going to chase employment. They're therefore going to come to our state. We're therefore going to have more people here. We're therefore going to have expansion and growth. 
I think as an encompass, so where do I want to invest? Well, I'm, I live in Perth. I've got great faith in in the state and where it's going and where it's going to continue to perform. I'm a specialist in property, so why not use those skills to find the best property I can in a place where I'm very confident will continue to expand and grow? And that's how it affects my decisions. Sounds like a great strategy, mate. So with the WA markets, how are they looking right now in your perspective? Can you give us like a sector-by-sector sector kind of take on, on where you think they are in the cycle? Yeah, look, I won't probably speak about where they're in the cycle, but like many other capital cities, our city is in a, is in a bit of a state from my point of view. It's been hit fairly hard with workers not working in the city. I personally think that recovery will be relatively quick. I think once people return to more normal work patterns that you will see the the city not flourish but come back and start to improve and prosper. But it's certainly coming off a fairly devastating base with what's happened. So that's my view on the city. In terms of office, I think there's been a flight to quality. There always is. I think that the second quality office market might take a bit longer because I see that there has been for some time a trend for people to work more remotely, a trend for people to work in suburban locations and a a trend for people to work at home. I think what we've been through has fast-tracked that trend. I just think that will continue to a degree. So where would you want to be if you're in the city? You'd want to be in the best office you can be. And so that secondary office market might be one that will struggle for a little bit longer and take longer to return. The retail market, which I spend a bit of time in, has rebounded reasonably quickly from my point of view, from what I have seen. And our retail areas, particularly our suburban shopping centres, are are starting to perform reasonably well again. I see that there'll be some rent growth in those areas. And I think that rent growth, again, comes off a relatively subdued base. So the state will grow, population grows. I think those rents will grow and they'll, they'll perform well. Our industrial market seems to be continuing to perform. And it's on the back of a mining continuation. I don't see any short-term change to that as to whether I will invest there. That comes back to the indecisions on where I want my capital. So we're probably more likely than we were over the last 10 years, but that doesn't mean it's my priority. And then you have the large format retail. And my comments about large format retail, it's going to change. It will continue to evolve, but I'm still very confident about it because you, by and large, talking about form of retail that carries low overheads, provides its users with large space, which they can certainly use, and a format with a relatively low rent overhead. So I still see that as continuing. People are using the facilities and continuing to evolve them. So, yeah, I see that market is continuing. Where will yields track? I think there will be. There has to be regard for interest rates. They have a direct effect on yields. They will push out a little bit. How much will will remain to see? I don't. I'm not a doomsday believer. I don't think it's going to be pandemonium, particularly in Western Australia. Whereas I think some of the return to normality of some of the yields is probably a good thing, but it will be matched by some growth in rents over the next two to three years. That rent growth will lag, but it will come through, and when it does, our assets will continue to improve from there. So I'm relatively buoyant without being silly. There'll be some pullback, lessening of yields. In other words, the yields will push out. But I think over a medium term, 
we should continue to see further growth. In your career, mate, have you ever seen a sector go like full cycle from boom to bust back to boom? Like say like back in the day when you were going for industrial, I would have imagined that office would have been the real shiny sector at that time. Yeah, have you look, ever seen anything go like all the full cycle? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I was a young valuer, we... I can still remember as I mean a young valuer. I can remember valuing uh, offices in the city and mm. I remember vacancy factors. And if you put a 2% vacancy factor on your office in the city, you were being very hard on it. You were harsh on that asset. And uh, mm. within, a, within a decade, the vacancy factor in the city was 30%. Then we had a, a boom period, followed that. And I, I think today we're back to those considerable vacancy factors and a uh, a quandary about whether there's a when we're going to see some return, particularly in that secondary market. So there's one that's done the boom bust quite a couple of times through a career. There are other more um, specific localities that have ebbed and flowed, certain usage in certain localities have ebbed and flowed. So it does happen. There's no question it does happen. And property needs to be viewed with its cycles, as you as you asked me, but it also needs to be viewed across a long period of time because property investment is not you get in and get out. Your transaction costs are considerable and it is a long-term investment. And so could you ever see industrial, the way things are going with online and, you know, the need for space, the need for storage, could you ever imagine industrial sector going back to more of the second or third sector of choice? Yes. You do? Yeah, I do. So it's already mine. So, yeah, I do. <laughs> I guess, I mean, your opinion is very, very interesting, but I guess over the whole market, they would be choosing industrial first, and that's reflected in the cap rates at the moment, mm. the tightening of cap rates. You can see that, that everyone is after the industrial assets. My answer is yes, I can say it coming to second or third choice. It's already there with me. You are getting a single tenant user. You are getting a facility that is very easy to open up additional industrial land. Personally, yeah, I might be wrong, but yeah, I can. Interesting. So, mate, what are the different aspects you need to have uh, front of mind when you're pivoting your strategy from buying to basically developing or redeveloping? I can only go through what I what I go through. I've not seen many full time developers be successful. In other words, anybody who purely does the developing, there are more instances where unfortunately they get it wrong and go belly up than have been able to span the the distance where i've seen successful developers more commonly they have had another core business which brings them cash flow that core business might be property ownership long term it might be another business that they are involved with and they pick and choose when they enter the market so for a developer you certainly need to be a bit more savvy in terms of where you're at now for me when i'm looking at developing i'd be nervous at the moment because of the um, price increases in development costs and so that's something that i'd want to see settled i'd also want to have a more stable environment in terms of where my interest rates are and where my my cpi figures are i'd want to see some stability there so that i know i'm investing in a market where the lag time between buying that land getting it um, to the point where it's ready to be developed and then actually building on it they're your risk profiles i think you were heading down the aspect of those risk profiles so your risk profile as a developer is substantially greater 
than your risk profile as a property owner in terms of a built form because you've got your risk of your land acquisition, your risk of your process of planning. And when I say risk, it's a time risk. That process at the moment is taking an exorbitant period of time and that time is money. And then you've got your, your built form and you've got your risk that there will be something go amiss with your builder. You've got your risk that your construction costs will blow out, which is quite a considerable risk in the current climate and environment. And your third element of your risk is your risk of sale. Now, if you're developing to sell, you've got the risk that there could be changes to pricing, and that can be positive, but it's a risk because it can be negative. If you're developing to hold, the risk is that you have a risk of rents not being where they need to be when the point comes to renting the facility out. So, again, I've probably wandered off track, but developing has all of those risks. They need to be taken into consideration. And in terms of when is it the right time to start that, to start looking at a um, development, land development trust or property, it's not now for me. I'd want to see a little bit more stability before I took that decision. Right at the moment, I couldn't be confident where building costs will be by the time the development came to be started. And I, I couldn't be 100% on there, never 100%, but I couldn't be confident as to what that market will be doing in, in 24 months' time in terms of if I was wishing to put a product on the market to sell. Yeah, I think you're of the same mind as, as myself where we're putting something on a contract um, this week, a self-storage facility that has extra, a very, very large parcel of land and, and lots of space. This actual self-storage facility is very, very under-rented. So day one, we're going to be pushing rates, which is adding value there. And then in time, we're actually going to be developing more self-storage space on the actual site. But there's that known existing revenue that's going to be supporting us there while we're actually waiting to develop. That makes a lot more sense to me. Excess land on a, on a site that you buy always makes sense. Just gives you flexibility, gives you opportunities. And when you take advantage of those opportunities, that's, that's important. But having it there is what is more of interest. Actually grabbing something specifically to develop today, probably not at that point. Our last two acquisitions quite in similar fashion, child mining centre that we bought, the big interest in that was it, it was um, was the excess land that came with it. So, you know, we bought a site that we can further develop when we choose to. The shopping centre that we bought was quite run down. We think we can add value through rents. We think we can renovate. But we also think we can put a child mining facility on there to add value with the excess land. So mm. that makes sense. That is the sort of asset we'd like to acquire. We don't want to acquire something that we must develop today. Yep. Or else we're just holding and paying holding costs. That's not not of interest. Yeah, that's right. All right, mate. So I just want to try and uh, see if you have any kind of a crystal ball when it comes to interest rates over the next 20 years. Do you want to give it a stab to see uh, how wrong or right we can be? No, no chance. (laughs) (laughs) Would you ever expect them to go back to what they were 20 years ago at like, you know, was 17% or something crazy like that? You know, I had a mortgage 17 years ago at 17%. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I'm not going to comment. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. How do you think the lifestyle working from home movement will affect commercial property markets in future? I think that will affect commercial property markets in future. I think it's been an ongoing trend. I just think it's been pushed forward a little bit by the fact that we all had to work from home. And some people found it to their liking and some people found 
that needed to be moderated a bit. How will it affect commercial property? Well, there's a direct effect on office and city office, but I don't think the city office is suddenly going to disappear. And I don't believe that people suddenly won't need to work together in an office-style environment. But I do think that there will be a continuation of commercial hubs in suburban locations being quite good investments. And I think that will continue to grow. So we all see it. We all we all have experienced the ability to, to go to our local neighbourhood shopping centre or to go to our local community spot where we have our coffee and there's our gym. And those sort of commercial investments I do see as continuing to perform on a medium-term basis. Very, very good, mate. So today's been absolutely excellent. Mate, where can the listeners go to find out more about you and your business? Website, which is sullivanproperty.net.au, or you can call us at the office, which is Perth 08 9438 Perfect, mate. Today's guest has been Brian Sullivan. Cheers, mate. All the best, Andrew. Have a good one. Bye. That's the end of another great show. I'd like to thank my guest today and Kevin McLeod for the music. Don't forget to check out our other network podcasts. And remember, in the words of Grant Cardone, be obsessed or be average. I'm Andrew Bean, signing off. This has been a Developer Life production.